Republican Kevin McCarthy tries to strike a deal with far-right members of his party in an effort to end the standoff over the selection of a House Speaker. It's Friday, January 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, today will be day four of attempts to pick a speaker after 11 failed votes for McCarthy. Let's realize the facts. Kevin McCarthy does not have the votes. Let's elect a Republican who can unify our conference. Also this hour, call her Governor Maura Healy. Mindful of the weight of history, enlightened by the gift of gratitude. It is the honor of my life to lead this state. Healy takes office as the first woman and lesbian elected to the job in Massachusetts. And a preview of the December jobs report. In sports, the Bruins and Celtics win a mix of rain and snow today in the 30s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House of Representatives will spend a fourth day trying to elect a speaker. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Republican leader Kevin McCarthy hasn't been able to win the speakership so far because he cannot convince a small group of hardline Republicans to support him. After three days and 11 rounds of voting, McCarthy appears no closer to gaining the support of a group of conservative hardliners, despite offering what's reported to be a growing list of key concessions. Speaking between ballots on Thursday, Republican Congressman-elect Mike Lawler claimed McCarthy is making progress with the holdouts. There are a lot of concerns that have been raised by those 20 or so individuals. Kevin has negotiated in good faith to address their concerns. This is now the longest speaker contest in generations. The House cannot kick off the new Congress or swear in new members until a speaker is elected. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Today is the second anniversary of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. President Biden will mark January 6th by awarding a dozen medals to Americans that the White House says worked to uphold democracy. Doctors in Cincinnati say Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin has shown substantial improvement. He collapsed during a game Monday night and went into cardiac arrest. He was initially sedated in the hospital, but NPR's Allison Aubrey tells us Hamlin is regaining consciousness. Doctors say DeMar Hamlin has begun to wake up. He's moving his hands and feet. He's not yet speaking because he's still got a breathing tube in and he's been under sedation, but he is communicating with people around him, expressing himself in writing using a pen and pad. NPR's Allison Aubrey reporting. Meanwhile, the NFL says the postponed Bills game against the Cincinnati Bengals will not be resumed. The league says this will not affect which teams qualify for the NFL playoffs. South Carolina's state Supreme Court has struck down an abortion law. It bans the procedure at around six weeks of pregnancy. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen reports the court rules this violates South Carolina's constitutional right to privacy. In a split decision, the justices ruled the fetal heartbeat law banning abortions after cardiac activity is detected, roughly six weeks, violates a woman's right to privacy because it does not provide a reasonable period of time to determine pregnancy and take steps to terminate it. The nearly two-year-old ban has faced numerous court battles, but the Dobbs decision made it enforceable for nearly two months last summer until it was challenged again. The latest ruling means abortion is legal in South Carolina through 22 weeks. One state, Georgia, has a six-week ban, and 13 others have an outright ban. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in South Carolina. 
It's NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Today is Governor Maura Healey's first full day on the job. She'll swear in her new cabinet secretaries and hold a meeting with them. Then she'll start the process of creating a new cabinet position, one that'll oversee climate policy. The day of work follows yesterday's inaugural celebrations. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. I've been down with a broken heart since the day I learned to speak. Randy Carlyle performed last night at TD Center for a crowd celebrating Healy's historic inauguration. Earlier in the day, Healy took the oath of office, becoming the state's first elected female governor and one of the country's first openly gay governors. We were the first to guarantee that health care is universal. And 20 years later, that love is too. Healy proposed plans to build more housing and offer tax relief for families while promising to fix the T and address the climate crisis. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Today, the state's highest court will consider the fate of Boston's long-stalled employee vaccine mandate. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has a preview of the arguments before the Supreme Judicial Court. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu announced the city's vaccine mandate during last winter's Omicron surge, but three unions representing police and firefighters sued to block it, and an appeals court judge put it on hold. Boston Firefighters Union President Sam Dillon says the mandate and its threat of termination violated workers' collective bargaining rights. At the end of the day, this is about protecting our membership. This is about protecting the livelihoods, not just of Boston firefighters, but of their families. The city says it looks forward to reviewing the Supreme Judicial Court's eventual decision. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A T-train operator involved in a crash on the Green Line says he may have fallen asleep moments before a collision. A new federal report looking into the 2021 crash finds the trolley he was operating accelerated to a dangerous speed, then collided with another train in front of it. 27 people were hurt. Investigators say work-related fatigue was not a factor. The driver also tested negative for drugs and alcohol. Massachusetts lawmakers will be at local events today to mark two years since the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Congressman Jim McGovern will host a rally in Worcester calling for accountability for the event. Congresswoman Catherine Clark will be at a silent vigil in Concord tonight. She'll also host a rally there tomorrow. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. The Bruins beat the Kings 5-2 last night in Los Angeles. They'll visit the San Jose Sharks tomorrow. The Celtics top the Mavericks 124-95 in Dallas. The Seas wrap up their road trip tomorrow in San Antonio. A mix of rain and snow throughout the day today in Boston. More snow as you head north and west of the city. We should get less than a half inch in Boston and east of 495. There could be three inches in Worcester and Fitchburg. The high today will be in the 30s. The precipitation tapers off overnight and we'll have a low around freezing. Partly sunny tomorrow and in the 40s. Sunny on Sunday and in the 30s. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 707. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. What do voters think of a long-running fight over who serves as House Speaker? 
The House adjourned last night after an 11th round of balloting failed to produce a winner. Republicans hold the majority, but a small faction will not go along with their choice of Kevin McCarthy as speaker. This is now the most drawn-out speaker's race since before the Civil War. And as it unfolded, NPR member station reporters talked with some of the lawmakers' constituents, including Republican Robert Stepp of Colorado, whose representative is one of the holdouts, Lauren Boebert. I think it's a bunch of BS myself because they're trying to get a speaker into the house and everything and nobody's wanting to agree on what and it's just a bunch of uh, just a bunch of nonsense that's going on. NPR's congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales is with us. So we heard Robert Stepp of Colorado say it's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, Claudia, what are other voters saying? They're expressing dismay over these holdouts. There's 20 who have repeatedly voted against GOP leader Kevin McCarthy in his bid to be the next speaker. And as you mentioned, one of those rebels is Lauren Boebert, who won a tight race in her district. And here's what more of her constituents told NPR member station reporter Stina Sieg. Well, I think it's pretty silly. We should be doing part, uh, making every effort to be bipartisan and still work for the people. It's just confusion. It's pandemonium. No business is getting done. Other people are suffering because of it. That's Linda Detman, Peter Kampanich, and Marianne Wright, who all live in Boebert's district. And in Arizona, constituents also shared their frustration with station reporter Zach Ziegler over at least one GOP holdout there, Representative Eli Crane. I hope they find someone to speak, and I hope it's not Kevin McCarthy. It seems almost like it's on a, on a road to implode if, if they don't change things up soon. They don't look very strong right now, <laughs> to be honest. That's Natalia Shimchuk, Emiliano de la Rosa, and Elsie Gomez in Flagstaff, Arizona. And Gomez noted she's a McCarthy supporter and she just wants Republicans to pick him as speaker and move on. So where is McCarthy's fight for speaker now? Well, even though Republicans did go 11 failed rounds of votes, their negotiations continue today. McCarthy made a new offer to his opponents, and while there's no deal yet, there's more meetings to come this morning. McCarthy said he made another big concession. He lowered the threshold again to allow just one member to call for a vote to oust him if he does become speaker. That's down from five in recent days and dramatically lower than under recent speakers. Last night, McCarthy told reporters he's not putting a timeline on when they could reach a deal. I just think we've got some progress going on. We've got members talking. Uh, I think we've got a little movement, so we'll see. McCarthy has also made new concessions to install new term limits for members and get more of these rebels on key committees. But we should note these concessions would significantly weaken him if he does become speaker. But are they enough to break the stalemate? That remains to be seen. Some holdouts like South Carolina Representative Ralph Norman left a closed-door meeting saying this is, quote, round one, but he also called it a good thing. Nebraska Representative Don Bacon, a McCarthy supporter, says they're halfway there to locking in votes from the 20 holdouts. But that all said, McCarthy can only lose four of his members to get the speaker's gavel, and it's still not clear, even on day four, he'll get there. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thanks a lot. Thank you much. President Biden's administration wants to stop migrants from traveling overland to the U.S.-Mexico border. Their new plan attempts to shift the incentives. Yesterday, the president said the U.S. will make it harder for people to get in if they show up at the border and make it easier for some to get in if they stay in their home countries and apply from there. 30,000 people per month will be admitted that way. These new rules apply to people from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. 
Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas joins us now. Mr. Secretary, welcome to the program. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having uh, me. Both parts of this policy that I just mentioned seemed aimed at the same one goal, telling people not to come and cross the border illegally. Why is that your bottom line? Uh, Steve, there's a fundamental policy underlying uh, our operational measures, and that is the following, that we want people who qualify to come to the United States in a lawful, safe, and orderly way. And we do not want them to take the dangerous journey to place their lives, their life savings, in the hands of smuggling organizations that are ruthless. We want to cut out the smuggling um, organizations. We have seen too much death, too much tragedy, and too much trauma. And so we're building lawful pathways. I would imagine you're also thinking about what people see as chaos at the border, which is a bipartisan feeling in places like El Paso, Texas, for example. You know, um, Steve, the the challenge of migration that we are experiencing uh, on our southern border is not exclusive to our southern border, and it is not exclusive to the United States. It is a migration challenge that is gripping our entire hemisphere. I have traveled to multiple countries in the hemisphere, and we are seeing an unprecedented level of displacement. 2.4 million Venezuelans in Colombia. We are seeing the population of Costa Rica become increasingly Nicaraguan. I was in Ecuador in Colombia just two weeks ago to speak of this challenge that other countries are facing. And this is why President Biden led the region in the summit of the Americas last year and really Mm -hmm. pronounced a seminal agreement, the L.A. Declaration on Migration, to bring together the countries to address what is a united challenge, and we need to have a united response. Well, let me ask the question then. We've got, if you'll you'll forgive me, Mr. Secretary, we've got these disastrous conditions for many people in multiple countries, which is what you're pointing to, but you want them not to leave the country and to stay and to ask for uh, entry from the United States, entry to the United States from there. Have you done enough here that it's going to change the motivations of people in distress? You know, what we have seen, Steve, um, generally is that people are willing to wait if there is a safe and orderly process for them to arrive in the United States. They do not want uh, to place their lives in the hands of smugglers unless desperation compels them to do so, unless there are not alternative avenues, and that is why we are providing those alternative avenues. And what we, we, what we announced yesterday builds on the tremendously successful program that we developed for Venezuelan nationals. We saw Venezuelan uh, encounters in between the ports of entry drop 90% when we provided safe and lawful and orderly alternative pathways. Fundamentally, though, Steve, fundamentally, the challenge is that we are dealing with a immigration system that everyone agrees is broken. It is why President Biden, on his very first day in office, sent to Congress a comprehensive piece of legislation to reform a system that has not been updated for decades. Unfortunately, Congress has not acted yet. 
Uh, they, they don't even have the house organized at this point. Let me ask about the, the, the other part of this, though. You are going to turn away more people at the border without a hearing, uh, without parole into the country. That is part of this, is being a little harsher at the border. Um, I'd like to ask if you can do that legally. If someone reaches the United States and asks for asylum, isn't the U.S. legally required to let them in and consider their case rather than turn them back, as this policy suggests? Steve, you are you are referring to the public health authority that is commonly known as Title 42, the the statutory mm-hmm. provision. Uh, we are actually obligated under a court order issued uh, in Louisiana to turn uh, to people away. To but in some it. cases, I'm sorry, just because time is short, Mr. Secretary, I'm so sorry. Uh, but in but in 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 this case, you're adding extra authority under a different law, Title Eight, that will turn more people away. Is that correct? Uh, Steve, it is correct, and the, the reason is uh, very straightforward, that we want to incentivize people to take the safe and orderly pathways and disincentivize them to take the dangerous, the treacherous uh, path of placing their lives in the hands of smugglers. We have got to should, cut the smuggling organizations out of this. In about 10 seconds, should we expect to see the flow of people at the border decrease in months to come? That is certainly our plan, and we've been working on it since September of 2021. Alejandro Mayorkas is the Secretary of Homeland Security. Mr. Secretary, it's a long discussion. I'm pleased to have a small part of it here. Look forward to talking with you again. As do I. Thank you, Steve. Let's bring in NPR's Joel Rose now, who covers immigration. Joel, good morning to you. Hey, Steve. What stands out to you on what we just heard? Well, it's striking that the administration is framing this in terms of cutting out the smuggling organizations and, and protecting migrants, helping migrants reach the U.S. in a safe and orderly way, you know, and not emphasizing so much as you as you tried to, to push him on the parts of the plan that will make it harder for migrants to seek asylum, um, you know, including sharp new restrictions on, on, on who can apply, the expansion of Title 42, which the secretary mentioned there. These are pandemic border restrictions first put in place by the Trump administration. You know, and it's important to note that the new legal pathway that they're establishing here is fairly narrow. Applicants will have to have a financial sponsor inside the U.S. They'll have to apply from abroad. Not everyone is going to qualify. 30,000 people a month sounds like a lot, but it's, you know, it's really only a small fraction of the number of folks who are from these sending countries that have been seeking protection in recent months. The administration has been criticized from the right for being too lenient, criticized from the left for being too harsh. How are people responding to this announcement now? Exactly as you just described. I mean, immigrant advocates are not happy. There's a little bit of praise for these new legal pathways, but overall the reaction has been negative. Advocates are accusing the Biden administration of doubling down on Trump-era policies. And immigration restrictionists don't like this plan either. They are calling it a mass amnesty because it would allow these 30,000 migrants a month into the country illegally. And they don't seem convinced that these tougher restrictions will do much to get the crossing numbers down. From their perspective, it's too little too late. Joel, thanks for the perspective. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. That's NPR's Joel Rose. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The suspect in the murders of four University of Idaho students made a court appearance yesterday. Coming up, officials haven't yet said what might have been the motive in the killings. It's 719. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org cars, and thanks. 
I'm Deepa Fernandez. We discuss the first week of 2023 from the economy. This is going to be a tough year, tougher than the year we leave behind. To the political situation. The president needs to tell Kevin McCarthy that, sir, you do not have the votes. And the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Fog this morning and we'll get some rain and snow later today. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says there could be a few heavy bursts of precipitation this afternoon. It's a quick event. Last of the snowflakes and raindrops wrap up about 5 to 6 p.m. Accumulation a coating to an inch in the city, and that's on grassy surfaces. One to two inches north and west of town could be a few three-inch totals in western Millsex, northern Worcester County, into southwest New Hampshire. Tonight, untreated surfaces may become icy as temperatures drop below freezing. Tomorrow, a quick flurry or sprinkle is possible. High of 42, bright but chilly, upper 30s on Sunday. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. We're learning new details about the brutal killings of four University of Idaho students in November. Court documents indicate one of the surviving roommates saw someone wearing a mask inside the house in Moscow, Idaho, on the morning of the attack. The suspect, Brian Koberger, has yet to enter a plea. NPR's law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi says police already had an idea of who the suspect could be early into the investigation. When Koberger was charged, we got a look at an affidavit that lays out how they identified him and their reasons for arresting him now. It turns out that back in November, they'd already identified a white sedan from surveillance video. This was a car that was captured by security cameras driving around in the middle of the night in the area of the killings. Less than two weeks after the murders, a campus officer at Washington State University found the same kind of car there. WSU is about 20 minutes away across the state line from the University of Idaho, and that car was Brian Koberger's. Wow, what other evidence do they have against him? Well, the car seems to be what brought him to their attention, but they took their time to build up other evidence. Uh, They uh, say they have some cell phone location records showing his phone on the move that night until about an hour before the crime. It stops pinging towers, uh, then starts again after the crime with a location south of Moscow, and police say that would be consistent with somebody turning off his phone to avoid leaving a trail. Also, perhaps most significantly for a potential trial, the police say they have DNA. They say they found male DNA on an empty leather sheath for a knife found at the scene. 
They say that DNA shows strong family ties to another sample that they got from the garbage outside his family's home in Pennsylvania, presumably a sample from his father. Now that he's in custody, though, Brian Koberger, they'll likely want to test him directly, take a sample directly, and make sure that's a match. Okay, now the suspect, uh, Brian Koberger, he was a student, right? Yes, but not at the same university as the victims. He just moved to Pullman, Washington, where he was starting a PhD program in criminology at Washington State University. That's a short drive away. He was a teaching assistant there. He had an interest in forensics. The faculty there have not commented so far about their experience with him, and we have no real information about anything out of the ordinary in terms of his academic career there. All right, so Koberger has been extradited. He's in jail in Moscow. What's the reaction there been? Well, relief, of course, that there's a suspect in custody. Uh, This is a place where murders are extremely rare, and people were afraid. One of the things we learned from this affidavit is that one of the surviving roommates in that house says she heard crying and a thud from the victim's rooms. She didn't realize what was happening, and then she opened her door and she saw someone dressed in black with a mask on leaving the house. So this was a terrifying experience in this community. And I think now that he's in custody facing trial and the possibility even of the death penalty because it's Idaho, the students in this community are more likely to feel at least a little bit safer now coming back to classes. That's NPR's law enforcement correspondent, Martin Costi. Martin, thanks. You're welcome. Today is Christmas Eve, according to the Julian calendar, the one established by Julius Caesar, the Roman leader, before the Gregorian calendar became the standard we know today. A small but significant portion of the world's Christians still follow that calendar, so they will celebrate Christmas tomorrow in countries like Ethiopia and Egypt and Moldova and Russia. You might be familiar with what's sometimes called Christmas creep. Uh, when, you know, when you hear Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is you the day after Halloween. I don't want a lot for Christmas There is just one thing I need All right, Mimi, we get it. But uh, Barbara Bruce likes that her Christmas season is so drawn out. You don't get the post-holiday blues because you're just starting to celebrate it. Bruce attends an Orthodox Christian church in British Columbia and runs a blog about her Orthodox Christian faith. The time before isn't, you know, rushing around, partying, things like that. It's a beautiful time spiritually because it actually makes you stand back and like, where am I going with my life? What am I doing? She says Orthodox Christians typically do a vegan fast for 40 days before starting 12 days of Christmas celebrations on January 7th. We greet each other for 12 days. We say Christ is born and the response is glorify him. Many Orthodox Christians do not give gifts at Christmas. Bruce does, which means, at least in theory, that she can take advantage of post-Christmas sales. We get asked that quite a bit, but on the bad side of that, everything's always sold out. There's a lot more homemade things are made. Maybe you're talented making like art or baking or something like that. They don't eat their first meal until after the stars come out. There's a white tablecloth representing the swaddling clothes of Christ. There's a white pillar candle signifying, of course, Christ being the light of the world. If you have straw available, there's straw put on the tablecloth, and you hope that your young children don't start playing with the fire in the straw. Now, another tradition among Orthodox Christians is that they make sure all the pets in the house have been fed before they eat. 
in remembrance of the animals that were at the manger with Christ. Hmm. And what's on the table? There's usually about 12 uh, Lenten dishes, like going from bitter to sweet, reminding us of where we are in our life and then coming to the sweetness of Christ's birth. So when people have eaten, they don't do the dishes right away, instead leaving for church. There was the flight into Egypt after Christ was an infant and the King Herod was coming to kill the children two years and under. So right after we have this quiet meal, we depart to church for the service. That was Barbara Bruce, who is preparing to celebrate Orthodox Christmas tomorrow. Weekend edition. Flooding is expected through the weekend in some parts of California due to another storm. We hear how communities along the Bay Area's Russian River are preparing. To listen, stream NPR or on your smartphone or computer, or you can just listen to us on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, an employment report out from the Labor Department today is expected to show that the overall job market remains tight. And doctors say Buffalo Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin's condition has improved, but he remains in intensive care. Hamlin collapsed during a game Monday night. It's 729. Remember, as you head out the door this morning, that wherever you're going, WBUR can go with you with the new and improved WBUR mobile app. The recent spread of COVID, RSV, and the flu has been called the triple-demic. Experts are especially concerned about a rise in COVID cases. There's no question in my mind that we're going to be seeing a lot more infections with COVID over the next few weeks. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Why health authorities are urging people to take precautions. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. More voting is expected today on Capitol Hill, where the House remains without a speaker. Republican Kevin McCarthy has come up short in each of 11 votes over the last three days. A group of about 20 GOP conservatives remains opposed to the California lawmaker's nomination. NPR's Claudia Grisales says closed-door negotiations have been taking place among Republican holdouts. Nebraska Representative Don Bacon, a McCarthy supporter, says they're halfway there to locking in votes from the 20 holdout. But that all said, McCarthy can only lose four of his members to get the speaker's gavel, and it's still not clear, even on day four, he'll get there. This is the longest back and forth over a House speaker since before the Civil War. The mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, says $800 million approved by Congress last month to fix the city's aging water system is a big step forward. We are one step closer to securing the estimated $2 billion needed to recover and fully modernize Jackson's water system. That's Mayor Shokwe Lamumba. Problems with Jackson's water system multiplied last month when sub-freezing temperatures caused pipes to burst. The man charged with killing four University of Idaho students in November is being held without bond. 
This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey is ordering all state agencies to conduct an equity audit. In her inauguration address yesterday, she said the audit would help break down barriers and end systems that lead to exclusion. We cannot reach our potential when so many are held back. People of color, people with disabilities, women, LGBTQ residents continue to face barriers that have held them back for generations. Today, Healy will get to work. This morning, she'll swear in members of her cabinet and then hold her first cabinet meeting. Eric Batista will be sworn in as Worcester's city manager today. He'll be the first Latino to hold the job. Batista has been serving as interim city manager since April. Gas stoves are contributing to childhood asthma cases in Massachusetts. That's according to a new study from the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. It finds more than 15 percent of child asthma cases in the Commonwealth are caused by the appliances. Massachusetts lawmakers are working to phase out gas stoves. A 2021 climate bill included a rule allowing some communities in the state to ban the use of fossil fuels in new buildings. It's 7.32. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. Six Celtics scored in double digits last night in Dallas. They beat the Mavericks 124-95. The Seas will visit the San Antonio Spurs tomorrow. The Bruins beat the Kings 5-2 last night in Los Angeles to begin a West Coast trip. The Bees will visit the San Jose Sharks tomorrow. And following Monday's Winter Classic, Fenway Park will be used to host a weekend of hockey games. WBUR's Fausto Menard has a preview. This afternoon, the ballpark hosts four women's college hockey teams in an event dubbed Frozen Fenway. Sophomore Madison Michaels plays for Holy Cross. Her team will take on Boston University. The Needham native says she's really excited about the game. It's definitely more than a hockey game, and to be able to play in such an historic ballpark, it means the world to me. Just growing up, going to Fenway um, with my family. Harvard plays Quinnipiac in today's other matchup. Tomorrow, the men's teams play, with UMass taking on Boston College and Northeastern playing UConn. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. A mix of rain and snow today around Boston. There should be at most a half inch of accumulation. There might be up to three inches of snow around Worcester. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. Tonight, cloudy with a chance of more snow showers. It'll be in the low 30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny in mid-40s. Sunday, sunny and in the upper 30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Noom, a personalized weight loss program based in psychology for helping people change their habits and conquer their goals. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. The job market was on a hot streak for much of last year, but a little less so now. This week, we heard of big layoffs at tech companies such as Amazon and Salesforce. NPR's Scott Horsley is covering this. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. We're talking in advance of the December job numbers, of course. Where do we stand? 
Most forecasters expect to see a little bit of a slowdown in the December hiring numbers, uh, but there's not a lot of confidence in those forecasts. You remember, forecasters hmm. expected to see a slowdown in the two previous months, and that didn't really materialize. Yeah. Even though the Federal Reserve has been deliberately trying to hit the brakes by raising interest rates in an effort to curb inflation, Dave Gilbertson, who's with the timesheet tracking company UKG, says the jobs engine just keeps chugging along. To me, the big headline in the labor market from 2022 as a whole has been just the remarkable calm. The labor market's been this calm eye in the center of the storm. For all of 2022, we know the economy added well over 4 million jobs. That's a really strong showing, and it was more than enough to backfill the big hole in the job market that was left when the pandemic started. Okay, so the bottom line for the year is that the job market has been really great, even though interest rates have been going up in this effort to deal with inflation. But as that goes on and on, how does it affect the job market? Well, it's already affecting the most sensitive sectors like the housing market. Uh, we could see a slowdown in construction hiring, for example. Uh, of course, it was also very cold last month uh, in much of the country, so that could also mm -hmm. play a role. Uh, mortgage brokers have seen some job cuts. Uh, manufacturing could as well. There's been a lot of speculation that in its effort to tamp down inflation, the Fed could tip the economy into recession. So businesses have been on the lookout for that. And as a result, Gilbertson says, some employers are getting more cautious about adding workers to their payrolls. They're kind of pumping the brakes a little bit on hiring, keeping the employees they've got because they don't want to be in a bind if things actually do continue. But they are starting to, again, let some air out of the tire when it comes to the amount of overtime that's being offered or the total number of shifts that are being offered. The pace of hiring has certainly slowed from the early part of the last year, but this is still a pretty tight job market. Uh, the Fed would actually welcome some loosening, uh, especially if it helps to keep a lid on wages. The central bank is worried that rapidly rising wages could put more upward pressure on inflation. So let's talk about the uh, tech layoffs that we mentioned, 18,000 at Amazon, 7,000 at Salesforce. What does that mean? Well, obviously, for the affected workers, that's a big disruption, and I don't want to minimize it. So far, though, at least we're not seeing evidence of really widespread job cuts elsewhere in the economy. Uh, new claims for unemployment benefits yesterday, for example, were uh, at historically low levels. Neela Richardson, who is chief economist at the payroll processing company ADP, says the businesses that have been cutting workers, like Amazon, are typically those that grew really fast over the last couple of years. These firms benefited from a pandemic economy where people were at home, they were hungry for the internet and hungry for devices. Now we're coming to a point where consumer spending has shifted again. Tech is responding by pulling back. Other employers, however, say even if their business slows down, they're going to be slow to lay people off because it's been such a challenge to find workers over the last couple of years. Ah, well, that raises another question, Scott. What do all these developments mean for the great resignation if some companies are firing workers and the trend in recent years has been for people to just quit? You know, most people quitting are taking other jobs, and we haven't really seen much of a slowdown in that. That's typically a sign that workers see their job prospects as pretty bright. And I guess unemployment historically, at this moment anyway, is still pretty low, isn't it? Close to a 50-year low. Wow. NPR's Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin has shown substantial improvement, according to the doctors treating him at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Hamlin went into cardiac arrest on the field Monday night during a game against the Bengals. His doctors say now he is alert. 
NPR health correspondent Allison Aubrey joins us uh, with more alert. Uh, sounds pretty encouraging, Allison. Morning. Yes, uh, Dr. Sejmar Hamlin has begun to wake up. He's moving his hands and feet. He's not yet speaking because he's still got a breathing tube in and he's been under sedation, but he is communicating with people around him, expressing himself in writing using a pen and pad. Here's Dr. Timothy Pritz of the University of Cincinnati. He is beginning to awaken uh, and it appears that his neurological condition and function is intact. Uh, We are very proud to report that, very happy for him uh, and for his family and for the Buffalo Bills organization. Doctors say the first question he jotted down on paper was about the game. Did we win, he asked, uh, and the response was, Damar, you've won the game of life. I'm sure that was a very emotional moment. So this is all very promising, eh? but he still has a ways to go. His doctors say he's still critically ill. The breathing tube he's using, how much does he need it? Well, doctors say their goal is to gradually decrease the amount of breathing support he needs, and they will take the tube out when he no longer requires any support. Uh, That will be the next big milestone for him, but it's unclear how long this is going to take. His medical team saw evidence of acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS as it's known, which can occur when fluid gets into the lungs. I spoke to cardiologist Grant Simons of Hackensack University Medical Center about what this could mean for Hamlin's situation. People of ARDS don't always make a full pulmonary recovery. He might end up with just a little bit of scarring. There's just no way to know right now. So that's one uncertainty. They still can't exactly why he collapsed on Monday. And doctors say it's still too early to project what his long-term recovery looks like. Yeah, and unlikely doctors are going to know the answer to any of that uh, quite yet. Uh, But people are still wondering, though, I guess, when he's going to start playing football again. Or if. I mean, this may depend in part on whether there was any underlying condition that made him vulnerable to cardiac arrest. And his doctors say tests to determine this are not yet complete. So the question is, was it just that sudden blunt impact to the chest that so many of us watching the game on Monday saw in the field in Cincinnati? Or was it something more? I spoke to cardiologist Greg Marcus at the University of California, San Francisco about this. It's possible that he has some other cardiac condition that renders him prone to dangerous arrhythmias. Now, this is what his doctors will need to rule out in the coming days. They'll do ongoing tests and evaluation. But for now, Hamlin's family and teammates say they are just overjoyed by the progress so far. And the Bills are now scheduled to play the New England Patriots on Sunday with the blessing of Hamlin's family. The game against Cincinnati will not be resumed. That's NPR health correspondent Allison Aubrey. Thanks a lot, Allison. Thank you, A. Good to be here. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Chinoy in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, WBUR's Anthony Brooks recaps Maura Healy's big day yesterday from taking the oath for governor of Massachusetts to a performance by Brandy Carlisle at the TD Garden. And your forecast, rain likely off and on until about mid-afternoon today. After that, a chance of snow. There's at most about a half inch expected around Boston and up to three inches around Worcester. Temperatures will top out in the upper 30s. Those fall to the low 30s tonight and it remains 
remains overcast with a chance of more snow. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Now, in business news, ocean regulators are putting together a plan to rebuild New England's codfish stock. The New England Fishery Management Council wants to limit the amount of fish that can be caught for a decade. That would let the population increase in the Gulf of Maine. Numbers of cod are low after decades of overfishing. Most of the codfish in local supermarkets come from overseas. The plan needs to be approved by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration before it can go into effect. Passengers flying on one of the biggest airlines at Logan Airport will soon be able to use Wi-Fi. Delta says it's putting free Wi-Fi on most of its domestic flights starting next month. It's 744. Support for WBUR's Business Report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of MassSave, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Maura Healy celebrated her inauguration last night, hours after she was sworn in as the 73rd governor of Massachusetts. The former state attorney general made history, becoming the Commonwealth's first elected female governor and one of the country's first openly gay governors. At the State House, Healy delivered an optimistic inaugural address, even as she outlined big challenges facing the state. Then it was on to the inauguration party at TD Garden. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. Governor Healy celebrated at TD Garden, home of the Boston Celtics, for a reason. Healy played professional basketball, and her running mate, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, played in college. And Healy often stresses the importance of teamwork, as she did last night. Kim and I are going to work our butts off, as we did a long time ago on basketball courts, for the health and well-being, the prosperity, the future of this great state. I think this song's relevant to your state you guys went and elected a hellraiser. Singer-songwriter Brandi Carlisle, a favorite of Healy's, headlined last night's event. I've been down with a broken heart since the day I learned to speak. The devil gave me a crooked start when it gave me crooked feet. Hundreds of people turned out, including Will Flanagan from Fall River, who called yesterday a historic day for the Commonwealth. To see a female governor and lieutenant governor, it's an inspiration for all the little girls across the Commonwealth that they could be inspired and aspire to be governor or lieutenant governor one day. Liz Souza, also from Fall River and who has three daughters, agrees and says Healy sets a great example. She has kind of set the stage for my daughters and and other girls who aspire to run for politics and pursue any profession, do anything in life. Earlier in the day, after she was sworn in as governor at the Statehouse, Healy received a standing ovation from Beacon Hill lawmakers that went on and on. Members of the legislature. And on and on. You're not going to let me start, are you? After more than a minute and a half, they finally did. 
Healy laid out a hopeful vision looking back at the state's history. She said Massachusetts began with a spark of revolution, which was followed by a series of firsts. The first public library, the first railroad and subway, even the first basketball game, and more. We were the first to guarantee that health care is universal. And 20 years later, that love is too. I stand before you, Healy said, representing another historic first. Healy was also blunt about the challenges facing Massachusetts, which she said are forcing too many people to leave the state. We have untold wealth in the Commonwealth, but record public revenue does little good when families can't pay the rent, buy a home, heat their home, or pay for childcare. Healy laid out a number of priorities to make the state more affordable. She promised to build more housing, deliver help to first-time home buyers, and expand tax deductions to help renters. All this would be overseen by a new Secretary of Housing. She also proposed tax relief for families in the form of child tax credits and a free community college program. And she pledged to tackle an issue that bedeviled her predecessor, Charlie Baker, the beleaguered MBTA. Let's acknowledge that we can't have a functioning economy without a functioning T. A scathing federal report found the T, which has been plagued by chronic delays and deadly accidents, falls badly short on safety, staffing, planning, and maintenance. Healy promised to appoint a safety chief to inspect the system top to bottom and says her top priority is to fix a staffing shortage. My first budget will include funding to hire a thousand additional workers focused on the operation of the MBTA, and I want to get that done in the first year of my administration. Healy also pledged to take action on the climate crisis, which poses a particular threat to coastal cities like Boston. She said she'll create the country's first cabinet-level climate chief, and she wants to invest in a so-called climate corridor stretching across the state that would focus on research, innovation, and clean technologies. We can protect our climate and create jobs. It's not too late to do either. It's urgent that we do both. And I believe Massachusetts can and will lead the world. Healy describes herself as an optimist, and yesterday that side of her was on full display. She said, where others may see hopelessness and resignation, I see unparalleled opportunity. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Rupa Chinoy in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. I was so interested to hear a little of what Anthony had to say. He did the live coverage of us mm-hmm. with us yesterday, and of course, you're processing it all so fast, so yeah. great. And my gosh, great job. That oh, was thank an you. incredible stretch of radio. That was great. Fascinating stuff. So today, we turn our attention to two years since January 6th. Um, uh, we are in such a different place this year on this day, Rupa, here in the Commonwealth than we were last year on this day. So we're actually checking in with a couple people we spoke with last year, and we will kick it off with a conversation with Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton, mm-hmm. uh, who has really stayed in touch with the station on this subject 
thoroughly over the last two years. So I'm, I'm interested in that conversation. Also interested in his take on how what's playing out in Congress right now does or does not relate back to that day. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the main focus. We also have a graphic novel uh, on January 6th by a number of local artists. Also should be a great conversation. All right. Oh, happy Friday. Happy Friday, Rupa. <laughs> okay. You have a good day. Thanks. It's 7.51. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Before the attack on the U.S. Capitol in 2021, a talk radio host was on the air. Eric Metaxas interviewed a man who denied the presidential election results and who in turn got a call yes, from I Donald Trump. President. Mr. President, I want to know what can I do? Fantastic. You, your, your whole show and your whole deal is great. So just keep it up. We're making a lot of progress, actually. The talk show host said he was willing to die for the cause. Another host on the same network, Charlie Kirk, fired up listeners on January 4. Believe it or not, there is a almost guaranteed way that Donald Trump serves four more years. Mike Pence says, I refuse to certify at this very moment the election results of Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Radio hosts were part of the backdrop for the January 6th attack. They have audiences of many millions, and they are the focus of a podcast series, Divided Dial, hosted by Katie Thornton. She says the series grew out of a long drive she took in a rural part of her native Minnesota. And my car radio dial, only one station was strong enough for it to pick up. And it was playing this sort of long-standing uh, evangelical, very conservative show of focus on the family. And it was a long drive and it was pretty lonely. And it kept me company. And I started to think about what sort of options people have to listen to on the radio dial and how it might be shaping their worldview and their political view. Thornton learned that conservative radio is as old as radio, but it grew in the 1990s when looser federal regulations made it easier to give one-sided opinions on the radio without equal time for other views. One star rose above all. Talk about a woman who's not anything without her husband. It's Raisa Gorbachev. She has a PhD. You know what that PhD is? It means you go to a Marxism course for 20 minutes. Let me put it to you this way. The NFL all too often looks like a game between the Bloods and the Crips without any weapons. Rush Limbaugh inspired many imitators. He also shared the dial with conservative religious broadcasters. And of today's influential companies, a big one is the Salem Media Group. Today, they own over 100 stations, and they syndicate to over 3,000 stations. And they've had this sort of strong base on the radio for so long that they've been able to use that as a sort of launching point to expand into being this multimedia empire in a way. They own many of the largest uh, conservative news sites. They also have services that sell sermons to pastors. They have a podcast network. They have an influencer network. And so they're really hitting people wherever they are, whether that's on the radio or online. Is Salem arguably more influential than Fox News? 
That's a really tough thing to parse, but I do think that I would I would put them in the running. Their hosts have been some of the most vocal about the idea that the 2020 election was stolen, for example. Many of them also have encouraged people not to take the vaccine, have spread falsehoods about the vaccine. There is a lot of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. The COVID pandemic, this has been the biggest global dry run to prepare the world to receive the mark of the beast in the seven-year tribulation in the history of mankind. The vast majority at this point of gender confusion is being driven by societal mania. Racial profiling is good for your health. It could save your life. I know a lot of people, oh my God, this is racist. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. Drill, build the Keystone Pipeline, deport illegals, build the wall. I don't want to hear about the EPA or the Department of Energy. I don't want to hear about Biden's overreach. Defy the federal government. Sometimes when people report on Fox News, they will make the observation that people at Fox News do not necessarily believe everything that is said on Fox News, that they're in a business. They're just saying things in some or many cases rather than saying what they believe. When you spoke with Phil Boyce, a top executive of the Salem Media Group, did he indicate that he believes what he's doing? Yes, absolutely. I think that sometimes the idea that people are only in it for the money almost sort of degrades the influence that this has. Absolutely, there is an ideological motivation as well. I was sort of expecting to get sort of a wall of professionalism, you know, a lot of sort of media trained PR speak in a way. And I was very surprised and honestly quite grateful for the honesty that he showed me in, in demonstrating that this really, really is an ideological project from top to bottom. There is something different about Salem that I think you need to understand. The difference with Salem is even though we always want to make money and we do make money, we're in this to save America. Something that he said is that he wants the country to sort of go back to what he saw as the conservative and Christian values that it was founded on, which I think many people, including many evangelical and Christian scholars, have uh, contested. But he, he described something called the the Salem worldview, which he said they don't have anything necessarily in writing about, but it's sort of a, a gut feeling that they have within Salem, within the leadership and within their hosts. We believe that America is the greatest country on earth, and we should do everything we can to protect the Constitution, to help foster the conservative values that we think the country was founded on. Uh, we think we're performing a really important job in America. You know, when I've heard conservative radio over the years, I find myself often reflecting as someone who loves radio, as someone who is a journalist who is on the radio, that whatever I may think of their political views, they're good at what they do. Rush Limbaugh oh, yeah. was a good broadcaster, I thought. Hugh Hewitt is good at what he does. What did you come away with after who knows how many hours of listening <laughs> to this programming to prepare for your series? Oh, yeah, absolutely. These hosts are uh, fantastic at what they do, oftentimes. Something that I think is, on one hand, daunting, and on one hand, very exciting, is that radio is still, you know, consistently ranks as the most trusted medium in America. And I think that's really because of the format itself. You know, you're close to the hosts. They're in your kitchen with you while you cook. They're in your car on your commute. But they're also just really good at talking off the cuff, at sort of taking a, a germ of truth and a germ of a critique that many people sort of across the political spectrum might have and really turning it to their perspective, offering the sole solution. You know, something that I talked with Phil Boyce about, the, the senior vice president, 
president of talk content at Salem is, you know, he argued that they're just sharing their opinions. And something I mentioned was that when I listen to conservative talk radio, I don't hear these perspectives shared as opinions. I hear them shared as fact. Katie Thornton is the host of the new podcast, The Divided Dial. Thanks so much. Steve, it was great to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Business at the U.S. House remains at a halt as hard-right Republicans continue to block Kevin McCarthy's efforts to gain the speakership. It's Friday, January 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, today marks two years since a deadly riot at the U.S. Capitol, and still no word on whether the Justice Department will charge former President Trump, who a House committee found was responsible for the event. Also this hour, Ukrainian and U.S. officials are rejecting a call by Russia for a temporary ceasefire for Orthodox Christmas. And the U.S. says it will no longer allow its advanced computer chips to be used in the weapons systems of competing nations. What we have done is ensure no country that might eventually mean to do us harm can rely on our stuff to hold us at risk. In sports, the Bruins and Celtics win. Rain and snow today in the 30s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There have been 11 ballots for a new Speaker of the House, and the chamber still doesn't have one. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy hasn't been able to secure the votes of a small group of Republican hardliners that he needs to win the job. NPR's Dave Mistich reports the House will reconvene later today. The House will enter a fourth day of voting on a new Speaker after Kevin McCarthy fell 18 votes short on an 11th ballot. As the fight goes on, it's now the longest contest to decide who will lead the House in well over a century. Some lawmakers, both those who support and those who oppose McCarthy, say there is work on an agreement to finally settle the matter. But conflicting comments from members have thrown into question how close they really are. All other business, including establishing rules, committee assignments, and any work on legislation remains stalled until a new speaker is picked. Dave Mistich, NPR News. There are reports of continued fighting in Ukraine despite a ceasefire announced by Russia for the Eastern Orthodox Christmas holidays. This was called by Russian President Vladimir Putin. But NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow it's been rejected by Ukraine. President Putin's ceasefire order to Russia's military extends for 36 hours, or until midnight Saturday when Orthodox Christmas comes to an end. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his Western allies have rejected the Russian offer as a PR stunt, one that could allow Moscow to resupply its troops even amid a brief pause in fighting. They also note that Russia has repeatedly shelled Ukrainian cities over the holiday season, killing scores. Russian nationalist commentators have seized on Ukraine's rejection of the ceasefire deal to denounce Kiev as the aggressor with no interest in peace. Both sides traded accusations of continued shelling after the Russian-declared noon ceasefire went into effect on Friday. Charles Mains, NPR News, Moscow. 
There have been powerful and deadly storms this week in California. Residents saw hurricane-force winds, and some were evacuated because of flooding. Now the National Weather Service warns three to six more inches of rain could fall. CAP Radio's Kate Wolf says Northern California could see some of the worst weather. Officials want people to stay indoors as much as possible, stay off those right roadways, and to be prepared for power outages. And they especially want people who live near bodies of water that are overflowing and could flood to be cautious. There are also concerns about debris flows in areas that have seen massive wildfires in recent years. Kate Wolf reporting. The site poweroutage.us says at least 60,000 California customers don't have electricity. The Labor Department is going to release its latest reports on employment later this hour. There have been some mixed reports on jobs in the U.S. as big companies like Amazon and Salesforce have announced layoffs this week. But economists say the labor market is still tight and employers are still looking for workers. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Today's Maura Healy's first full day as governor. She was sworn into office yesterday as the first woman elected to the job in Massachusetts. In her inauguration address, Healy promised to make fighting climate change a key priority. She's also calling for a climate corridor to focus on research, innovation, and manufacturing. We'll create thousands of jobs in clean tech, blue tech, coastal resiliency, and environmental justice. State lawmakers are applauding Healy's move to prioritize climate issues. WBUR Steve Brown reports. Lexington State Senator Mike Barrett says the governor's comments regarding climate initiatives were genuinely exciting. Barrett did acknowledge that Healy's predecessor made similar climate proposals that didn't come to fruition. I think the Healy stamp joined with uh, Baker's prior initiative gives it that bipartisan character that we really need. Also, this sort of stuff takes a lot of work. You don't want to do it at the end of an eight-year term. You want to really kick it off at the beginning of a fresh uh, pursuit of it. The governor will be filing an executive order to create a cabinet-level climate chief who will answer directly to her. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The case over Boston's mandate that city workers get a COVID vaccine goes before the state's highest court today. Mayor Michelle Wu ordered all city workers to get vaccinated during last year's Omicron surge. Three public safety unions moved to block that mandate in court, and it's been on hold ever since. Boston Firefighters Union President Sam Dillon says the case is a threat to workers' collective bargaining rights. Collective bargaining is paramount and fundamental to everything that we do. It protects our wages and benefits. It protects our working conditions. And most importantly, at the end of the day, it protects the continued employment of our membership. The city says it looks forward to reviewing the court's decision. The chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe has pleaded not guilty to charges he stole Native American items from a museum. Police tell the Cape Cod Times the theft happened in November at Plymouth, Pawtuxet. The tribe is at odds with the museum over how it presents indigenous history. Tribal Council Chairman Brian Whedon and another person charged are due back in court in March. People in the central mass town of Hardwick will vote tomorrow on whether to allow a horse track to be built there. The lead developer for the proposed project is a former co-owner of Suffolk Downs. Supporters of the plan argue a racetrack would bolster the local economy. Opponents say they're worried about traffic and animal rights issues. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Birch's School, a nature-based school for curious learners, pre-K through 8th grade. Open house tomorrow, January 7th from 1 to 3. More at birchesschool.org. The Bruins scored three times in the third period last night in L.A. They beat the Kings 5-2. to two. The Bees will visit the San Jose Sharks tomorrow. The Celtics easily beat the Mavericks 124-95 to 95 in Dallas. The Seas will visit the San Antonio Spurs tomorrow. A mix of rain and snow throughout the day today in Boston. More snow as you head north and west of the city. We should get less than a half inch in Boston and east of 495. There could be three inches in Worcester and Fitchburg. The high today will be in the 30s. The precipitation tapers off overnight and we'll have a low around freezing. Partly sunny tomorrow and in the 40s, sunny on Sunday and in the 30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 807. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Today marks two years since a deadly riot engulfed the Capitol. The January 6th House Select Committee spent 18 months looking at the events and actors that helped fuel the violence that day, and that includes a number of extremist groups. NPR national security correspondent Sergio Olmos has been poring over the committee's report. Uh, Sergio, the the January 6th report focuses on the efforts of former President Trump to overturn the 2020 election. Ultimately, that led to the insurrection at the Capitol. Can you remind us what role extremists uh, played in that? They were the tip of the spear. The report acknowledges that many of the people who entered the Capitol that day didn't plan to do so, but it also makes clear that extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers led the mob. They were an enzyme taking what could have been perhaps an unorganized riot or a political scandal behind closed doors and turning it into a violent attempt to overturn democracy. The report says, quote, but it is also true that extremists, conspiracy theorists, and others were prepared to fight. That is an insurrection. As the report notes, Trump tried to bend institutions to his will for weeks since election night. The Department of Justice, state election officials, all of whom told him no. The institutions of the republic didn't bend to his will, and so Trump went outside of them, calling on people outside of the government who would carry out his will. At the hearing, lawmakers played a montage of clips of far-right media figures like Alex Jones, Matt Bracken, and Tim Pool echoing Trump's call to come to D.C. on January 6th. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. If necessary, storming right into the Capitol. We know the rules of engagement. If you have enough people, you can push down any kind of a fence or a wall. This could be Trump's last stand. And it's a time when he has specifically called on his supporters to arrive in D.C. The report states that in the days leading up to January 6th, numerous numerous aides tried to get Trump to call off the rally, afraid of the kinds of people that were planning on showing up. On the day, Hope Hicks, a former White House advisor, sent a text saying, quote, we look like domestic extremists. And that is exactly the kind of people who played a key role in January 6th. And how did that work exactly? By January 6th, leaders of the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Stop the Steal, uh, founder Ali Alexander, were all communicating in an encrypted signal chat run by Roger Stone, a Trump associate. Each group had different plans for how they would lay siege to the Capitol. The Oath Keepers, for example, had a cache of weapons in hotel rooms in Virginia with men waiting by the radio to act as a quick reaction force. They would bring guns in once the Capitol had been taken. 
And on that day, the Oath Keepers moved on the Capitol steps in stack formations like trained soldiers. But it's important to understand that they didn't just appear on January 6th, these far-right groups. Uh, they, they have been building for years by the point of January 6th. Groups like the Proud Boys had been getting into street fights in cities like Portland, Oregon, something I witnessed firsthand. And I want to tell you the story of what happened there to understand the forces at play. In 2020, protests for racial justice in the wake of George Floyd's murder spread across the country. As the January 6th report lays out, quote, the Proud Boys deputized themselves as agents of law and order, and they played the role of instigators. In this video I recorded back in August of 2020, a Proud Boy leads a crowd of hundreds into a street brawl against racial justice demonstrators in full view of the police on the steps of the Justice Center in downtown Portland, Oregon. The January 6th report describes how the Oath Keepers, the far-right group that moved in that stack formation on the Capitol steps, used the racial justice protests in the summer of 2020 as a means to organize. They were self-appointed security at counter-rallies, building muscle memory by coordinating these events and using them to recruit new members. The report says that in the year leading up to January 6th, there were at least nine protests in which far-right actors entered state capitals. On December 21st, a couple of weeks before January 6th, I was there when far-right extremists broke into the Oregon State Capitol. By New Year's Day of 2021, multiple state capitals had been stormed, and far-right groups weren't just attacking racial justice protesters, but taking on law enforcement. The week before January 6th, I remember being at the Oregon State Capitol, watching a crowd of Proud Boys and others turn against the police. There was one man wearing a Don't Tread on Me flag as a cape. He was chanting on a bullhorn, no more backing the blue. As the January 6th report makes clear, the insurrection at the Capitol didn't come out of nowhere. In the Trump era, extremist groups went unchecked, getting more violent at protests. This went on for years, and when finally the president summoned them to Washington on January 6th, they came. That's NPR. I said he almost uh, back with us. All right, two years later, to the day, uh, where are these extremist groups now? So centrally organized far-right groups like the Oath Keepers have been mostly dismantled. They're basically gone. Their leadership has been convicted of seditious conspiracy charges like Stuart Rhodes. Decentralized groups like the Proud Boys and scores of others that are less well-known are a day-to-day -day reality, even as Proud Boy leaders like Enrique Tarrio are on trial for seditious conspiracy. Uh, Tarrio and his lieutenants have pled not guilty. Nearly a 1,000 people have been charged in the wake of January 6th. Uh, extremist groups use violent force to determine political decisions. On the biggest stage in the world, that failed on January 6th. But on smaller, more local stages, that's not necessarily the case. So at the end of the day, what do we take away from this? I do feel like there's a clear line between the bloody scenes I saw on the streets for years with far-right extremist groups and what we saw on January 6th. But today, far-right extremist groups aren't seeing a bipartisan crackdown. Instead, they're seeing their ideas gaining greater acceptance on the mainstream right. That's NPR national security correspondent Sergio Olmos. Thanks a lot.
In the Florida Keys, local and federal authorities are struggling to respond to a surge in the number of migrants arriving in boats from Cuba and Haiti. Several hundred migrants, most of them Cuban, have landed in the past week. The Biden administration just announced a new program that aims to close the country's southern border to unauthorized migrant crossings. But as NPR's Greg Allen reports, there are concerns it could lead to more Cubans attempting the risky journey by the sea. For much of the past year, rickety boats packed with migrants, mostly from Cuba, have been landing almost daily in Florida. Many come ashore in the Keys, the part of Florida closest to the island. The migrant landings drew national attention over the New Year's holiday weekend when boats carrying more than 400 Cubans landed on a remote island, forcing the closure of Dry Tortugas National Park. A Floridian who was camping on the island witnessed some of the landings and posted a video on social media. By yesterday, the Coast Guard said a total of 427 Cuban migrants had boarded its cutters and were taken to Key West for processing. The Coast Guard says the number of migrants intercepted at sea has spiked in recent months, with more than 4,000 Cubans stopped since October. Most are returned to Cuba. But many vessels are evading federal authorities. Rick Ramsey, the sheriff in the Florida Keys, told Fox News his officers have responded to dozens of migrant landings over the past week. He says the surge has overwhelmed Customs and Border Protection officials in his area. We actually had the other day, we called for a pickup for a group of migrants. They were so busy, they told us they may not be able to arrive until the following day. The numbers of Cubans arriving by sea are dwarfed by the massive numbers coming over the U.S.-Mexico border. In the last fiscal year, 220,000 Cubans arrived in the U.S. along the southern border, more than double the number who came more than four decades ago during the Marielle boat lift. Sebastian Arcos with the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University says it's the largest exodus Cuba has ever seen. And the reason is that Cuba is right now under its worst economic and political crisis since Fidel Castro came to power in 1959. Arcos believes conditions are more desperate than in the early 1990s, when the loss of support from the Soviet Union plunged Cuba into a prolonged economic crisis. As conditions have worsened, more and more Cubans have scraped together the twelve dollars to $15,000 needed to fly to Nicaragua and then pay coyotes to get them overland to the U.S. border. It's what the Cubans jokingly call the tourism to see the volcanoes in Hialeah, because they claim that they go to Nicaragua to see the volcanoes, but they actually end up in Hialeah. Julio Cesar Rodriguez Acevedo made that trip in October with his wife and daughter. It was a 17-day journey. He's now being supported by family members in the Miami area. It's not just me, but pretty much every young person from the moment they're able to think for themselves. The first thing they think is, how do I get out of here? Under a new program outlined yesterday by the Biden administration, migrations by Cubans like Rodriguez will now be significantly curtailed. Along with migrants from Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Haiti, Cubans won't be able to apply for asylum at the border. People from those countries with sponsors in the U.S. will have to apply from abroad in order to be allowed entry. Sebastian Arcos with Florida International University says closing the southern border may convince more to attempt the perilous journey by sea. If this is not clarified soon, my prediction is that it will generate a spike in the number of people trying to reach South Florida via boat. Biden administration officials say the new rules apply to anyone from the four listed countries, including Cuba, that attempt to enter the U.S. illegally at any point, including coming by boat across the Florida Straits. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami.
This afternoon on All Things Considered, the Biden administration approved a lithium mine in Nevada that's important to the production of electric cars. Native American tribes sued to stop it. Now its fate is in the hands of a federal judge. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just listen to us on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, Russian President Vladimir Putin has called a ceasefire in Ukraine to mark Orthodox Christmas. Ukrainian and U.S. officials say the move is disingenuous. It's 819. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. We discuss the first week of 2023 from the economy. This is going to be a tough year, tougher than the year we leave behind. To the political situation. The president needs to tell Kevin McCarthy that, sir, you do not have the votes. And the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Happy Friday. You made it. Thanks for sticking with us at WBUR. In the news today, 11 tries and 11 failures. But Kevin McCarthy says he isn't backing down in his quest to be speaker. We'll be tracking where the story goes today. Also, it's Maura Healy's first day as governor, and it's supposed to be busy. We'll keep you updated here on the radio at WBUR.org and on the WBUR mobile app. Some fog this morning to begin another sloppy weather day. There's a chance of rain until mid-afternoon, and WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says we could get a taste of winter by late afternoon. Light rain and snow continues through the afternoon. There will be some heavier bursts at times. It all wraps up generally 5 to 6 p.m. It's a quick and fairly minor event, accumulation of a coating to an inch in the city itself. That's on grassy surfaces. One to two inches for Metro West and north of the city, but some totals around three inches for the Worcester Hills to the Route 2 quarter. Some plows and road crews will be out, and it will be variable in terms of road conditions this afternoon north and west of town. Tonight, temperatures drop below freezing. Untreated surfaces may become slick. Tomorrow, a flurry or sprinkle possible. High of 42, bright but colder, upper 30s Sunday. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Viking dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore, viking.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is deeply skeptical of Russian President Vladimir Putin's call for a 36-hour ceasefire over Orthodox Christmas this weekend. 
Putin yesterday ordered his military to begin this ceasefire to let people observe the holiday, and he urged Ukraine to do the same. Zelensky, in his nightly address, accused Russia of simply trying to buy time to regroup and replenish its stocks along the front lines. Joining us now from Zaporizhia in southern Ukraine is NPR's Tim Mack. Uh, Tim, so what sparked Putin's proposal that Ukrainians, I'm sure, are taking with a grain of salt? So he said he was making the move in response to a call from the head of the Russian Orthodox Church to halt the fighting so that those who want to could safely attend Orthodox Christmas services. And he said he ordered a ceasefire from noon today. Now, the Ukrainian response has been to reject any deal. Here's Zelensky in a direct appeal to Russians in Russian last evening. He said that everyone knows that Russia will use this time to, quote, continue the war with new vigor. And he called on Russian people to help end the war, to, quote, find the courage for at least 36 hours, at least during Christmas, to free themselves from their shameful fear of one person, the Kremlin. Now, top Ukrainian national security official Alexei Danilov went even further, calling the ceasefire, quote, lies and hypocrisy adding that they would affirmatively continue the war. He said, quote, we will tear you apart in the serene silence of the Ukrainian night. And here's what a key Putin ally in Ukraine had to say. Denis Pushilin, a pro-Russian separatist leader, noted that it was merely a temporary ceasefire and that any, quote, provocations would be responded to. Okay, so what's been the response from the U.S. and Ukraine's other Western allies? I'm sure just as skeptical. Yes, well, President Biden echoed his Ukrainian counterpart, pointing out that Russia bombed Ukraine on December 25th and New Year's Eve and New Year's all through the holidays and also has been noted to bomb hospitals and churches. In fact, after Putin's offer was made, the White House publicized that America will give Ukraine Bradley fighting vehicles and that Germany would also pitch in by sending their own armored fighting vehicles and an additional Patriot air defense system. Now, this is something Zelensky has been asking for for some time, but he still wants more. For example, things like tanks, fighter jets, and longer-range missiles. There in Ukraine, Christmas is politicized. Can you explain why that is and, and how that maybe might account for Ukraine's skepticism? Right. So there's this big debate in Ukraine right now over whether to celebrate Christmas on December 25th or January 7th. Now, January 7th is traditionally when many Ukrainians and Russian Christians have celebrated Christmas. So there are powerful memories and feelings and traditions associated with the January marking of the date. But in recent years, some Ukrainians have begun celebrating Christmas along with the West with Europe in December. The full-scale invasion by Russia has intensified this debate, and those who support a December Christmas want to disassociate themselves further from Russia and the Eastern Orthodox Church. That's NPR's Tim Mack in Zaporizhia. Tim, thanks. Thanks so much. It's Friday, which is when we hear from StoryCorps, and for our first StoryCorps of this year, we hear from a man who was forced to chart a new path in life. Jason Romero suffers from a rare eye condition which is slowly causing him to go blind. Six years ago, he reached the point where he could no longer drive or work, and he came to StoryCorps with his daughter, Sophia. I wasn't getting out of bed, and I wasn't caring for you. I felt really guilty. The most important thing to me is to be a good dad to you and your brother and your sister, and I just didn't know how I was going to be able to do it if I couldn't see. But I started running because I knew it was the only way to for me to stay in the right mind. 
And running was really hard. I was so out of shape, but subconsciously, I think it was in revolt of my eyes. Do you remember when you first told me you were going to run across America? Yes, I do. It was 3,063 miles, and I ran 51 and a half miles a day for 59 and a half days. There was a lot of time for self-reflection, and my mind started to spiral, and I started to have like some really bad thoughts of, you know, I don't want to be out here. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would feel forgotten, but you called me every single day like you promised you would. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that was really important to me, Sophia. Why did you choose to call me every single day? Because I missed you. Just like, was like, I want to talk to my dad. <laughs> and that was the way I could. You know, since you're a little kid, you're always my best guide. It's not even like you're guiding me. It's like we're helping each other. Yeah. When you take my arm, it's so gentle. I feel so safe, so secure. Well, was it hard to be away from us for so long? Hard is not a strong enough word to describe it. It was like my heart had been ripped out. And I just didn't want to leave you guys. Yeah. But you guys have given me the grace to be able to do what I've needed to keep myself healthy and sane and happy. You are a beautiful person. And you are your absolute true self that inspires me on a daily basis. And I just, I love you for it. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, sweetheart. Jason Romero and his youngest daughter, Sophia, in Denver. Their conversation is archived at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, who created the Share the Love event 15 years ago as a way to help those in need. To date, Subaru and its retailers have donated more than $250 million to charity. More at Subaru.com share. And from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now, so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan explains why the U.S. is limiting the use of its advanced computer chips by some other nations. It's 829. There's a new slate of events at City Space for the new year. Stay on top of what's coming up and get first crack at tickets. Just sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy of California says he remains optimistic he'll eventually be elected House Speaker. I think we're having good um, discussions. I think everybody wants to find a solution. And the good thing about it is we worked this all out at the beginning, so the rest of the Congress will be very productive for the American public. McCarthy has come up short in each of 11 votes in the House over the last three days. 
Closed-door negotiations have been continuing with a group of roughly 20 GOP conservatives opposed to McCarthy's nomination. President Biden has announced new immigration rules for migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua and Venezuela who enter the U.S. illegally. Effective immediately, they'll be expelled to Mexico. At the same time, up to 30,000 people a month from the four countries are being allowed to apply online to come to the U.S. Here's Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. We want to incentivize people to take the safe and orderly pathways and disincentivize them to take the dangerous, the treacherous uh, path of placing their lives in the hands of smugglers. Mayorkas was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Biden is expected to visit the U.S.-Mexico border over the weekend as part of his trip to Mexico City for a summit. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey will swear in her new cabinet today. She'll also make her pitch for a new cabinet-level position to deal with the state's climate policy. Healey was sworn in as governor yesterday. In her inauguration speech, she promised to appoint a safety chief to inspect the MBTA. She also vowed to devote more money to addressing the T's worker shortage. That lack of staffing has had grave consequences. My first budget will include funding to hire a thousand additional workers focused on the operation of the MBTA. Healy also wants to use state resources to address problems exacerbated by the pandemic. She says the crisis widened gaps in health care, equity, and education, and that needs to be addressed. I also think that people are tired. We can speak honestly about that, but we've come through difficult days. The people of Massachusetts are resourceful and resolute and hopeful. In the address, Healy also outlined plans to address the high cost of housing, childcare, and education. Boston-area immigrant communities are reacting to a new policy from the Biden administration. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, there are some glimmers of hope, but many are worried the new rules may create more confusion and inequality. President Biden announced that up to 30,000 people from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela will be allowed to legally enter the country each month and stay for two years if they apply and have a sponsor. But people who come illegally will be immediately expelled. Gerald Gabot runs the Immigrant Family Services Institute, which serves many Haitian refugees. She says requiring a sponsor hurts those who don't have connections. Plus, she says many cannot safely return home to apply. When people are fleeing violence, when people are fleeing persecution, they don't have the time to go and apply. She wishes the administration gave more advance warning. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Boston's police commissioner is asking officers in other cities and towns to leave their jobs to come work here. In a letter to the Massachusetts Police Chief Association obtained by the Boston Herald, Boston Commissioner Michael Cox said there are serious staffing concerns. He says a large number of retirements has put a strain on day-to-day operations. It's 834. WBUR supporters include Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. 
The Celtics got their first win of the new year last night. They beat the Mavericks. They beat the Mavericks 124 to 95 in Dallas. The Seas will end their road trip tomorrow against the San Antonio Spurs. The Bruins topped the Kings 5 to 2 last night in Los Angeles. The Bees will visit the San Jose Sharks tomorrow. Bruins goalie Linus Allmark will represent Boston at this year's NHL All-Star game. It's the first time he's ever been named an All-Star. This year's game will be held next month in South Florida. Rain this morning, then a mix of rain and snow this afternoon. Around Boston, there should be at most a half inch of accumulation of snow. There might be up to three inches around Worcester. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. Tonight, cloudy with a chance of more snow showers. It'll be in the low 30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny in mid-40s. Sunday, sunny and in the upper 30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. President Biden's national security advisor sees a connection between U.S. democracy at home and U.S. influence abroad. Two years after the awful events of January 6th, the rest of the world is seeing the possibility of U.S. democracy being effectively sustained. We sat with Jake Sullivan in an office building next to the White House. He made a case the U.S. is back to promoting its values around the world. It has supported an elected government in Ukraine, for example. The U.S. has also, of course, deepened relations with undemocratic nations. Last year, President Biden visited Saudi Arabia, which he had previously called a pariah. We also have to be focused on delivering fundamental security for our people. We have to be focused on delivering sustainable economic growth. And that means that there is a constant effort to, on the one hand, advance our values, and on the other hand, make sure we're protecting our interests. The U.S. has tightened relations with the Saudis or with Vietnam while confronting more powerful nations like Russia or China, which a good part of our conversation focused on. U.S. democracy may be chaotic, but Sullivan contends that China's authoritarian ruler Xi Jinping faces economic trouble and a new crisis over COVID. When we entered office, there was a kind of view about the inevitability of China. Everything China did was going to work out for the best, and that system was far the preferable system. Two years later, I think it's very difficult to sustain that argument. Have you, in your recent actions, given the United States a fundamental advantage over China in access to key technologies? I'm thinking particularly of high-tech semiconductors, chips. So semiconductors, as many people have now learned, actually, just since the COVID-19 pandemic, are fundamental to the powering of our economy across the board. Semiconductors are also central to military power. It is semiconductors that power the guidance systems for advanced missiles. It is semiconductors that are in every part of a nuclear submarine. And so what the United States has done is two things in the last two years. First, we've said, we are going to invest once again in the United States of America being a manufacturing powerhouse for semiconductors so that we can have confidence in the supply of those semiconductors 
at any point, and no one can turn that off. Second, we've said we are no longer going to allow the most advanced chips, which are designed in the United States, to be used in the weapon systems of countries that are our strategic competitors, like the PRC. Of course, they're determined to build their own chip industry and they have a lot of money to do it with. Do you think that you have assured a U.S. advantage or simply delayed China somewhat? Nothing is assured in a world of high technology where disruptive breakthroughs are a constant. But what we believe that we have done is created the best possible chance for the United States to ensure for as long as possible that no country that might eventually mean to do us harm can rely on our stuff to hold us at risk. That's what we've achieved. You're correct The TSMC, the major Taiwanese chip maker, announced the opening of a plant in Arizona. President Biden celebrated that. But uh, Chris Miller, the author of a book called Chip War, an expert in this area, noted that TSMC, the Taiwanese firm, is still doing the vast majority of its work on Taiwan, their most sophisticated work on Taiwan, and it's still a global supply chain. Any given chip might be in a half a dozen countries. Is the United States really secure from a severe disruption in this area? This is going to be a matter of time, and it's not just TSMC, the Taiwan company. Samsung has made announcements. Micron has made announcements. Intel, and you've got in multiple states, at multiple sites, new construction, that will create thousands of jobs and create the kind of resilience and sustainability in the supply chain we need. But that will take time. It will take years. But for the so, foreseeable future, an airstrike on Taiwan severely disrupts the whole U.S. economy. Is that true? Well, look, I don't want to get into hypotheticals about what a particular military contingency would look like. But I will say this. When we entered office, more than 90% of the most advanced semiconductors were produced in Taiwan. 0% were produced in the United States. As of today, we still do rely on importing those chips. And we are going to have to build those fabs and create that leading edge manufacturing here in America. Again, you can't do that overnight, but we believe we are on a pathway to do that. And that month by month, the U.S supply chain is becoming more secure. We've spoken with a variety of analysts and also officials such as the new Republican chairman of a committee on China who see the risk of a war over Taiwan increasing. Do you see the risk of a war over Taiwan increasing? There is risk of conflict with respect to Taiwan, but I believe that with responsible stewardship, we can ensured that that contingency never comes to pass. And that is our charge. That is our responsibility. And the whole object and thrust of the Biden administration's foreign policy is to put in place sufficient deterrence, support for Taiwan, and diplomacy to ensure that we don't see a military contingency, that we don't see an invasion of Taiwan by the PRC. I've heard Chinese officials say that since the two presidents met late last year that Maybe it's not correct to say that relations have improved, but that they saw a way forward for some agreements in some areas. Do you see it the same way? And what are some agreements you think you can make? I believe that the meeting between the two presidents in Bali did, in fact, place a floor under the relationship. It provided some greater stability, and it gave direction to teams both in Beijing and in Washington to work on issues where it is in our common interest to make progress. For example, there is no reason that the United States and China as the world's two largest emitters of carbon, that we cannot find a way 
to work together to reduce overall carbon emissions in the world and contribute to solving the climate crisis. There is no reason why the United States and China cannot work together to reduce the flow of precursor chemicals that go into fentanyl that is killing tens of thousands of Americans. Republicans, as you probably know, are convinced that China will use your interest in climate change against you, that they will offer cooperation on climate issues in exchange for something else that they want. Is that the way that it works? Just look at the last two years. That's obviously not the way that it works. And in fact, President Biden has been explicit in saying that we don't view Chinese cooperation on climate change as some kind of favor to the United States. That's their obligation as the largest emitter in the world. And it's in their interest too, because their people are choking on pollution. If the PRC decides it's not gonna cooperate, that's to its detriment. And we will make sure the world understands that it's the one that's choosing to be recalcitrant. In fact, there was a period in the closing months of last year where the PRC said, we will not deal with the United States on climate. And we turned around to everyone else and said, hey, we're ready to do it. The fact that they're not, that's on them, not on us. Mr. Sullivan, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Jake Sullivan is President Biden's National Security Advisor. It's NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, the debut today of the Fisk University women's gymnastics team. It's the first women's intercollegiate team from a historically black university. Another sloppy weather day today. There's a there's a chance of rain until about mid-afternoon. After that, a chance of snow. There's at most about a half inch expected around Boston and up to three inches around Worcester. Temperatures will top out in the upper 30s. Those fall to the low 30s tonight, and it remains overcast with a chance of more snow. The weather improves this weekend. It'll be partly sunny and in the mid-40s on Saturday and on Sunday, sunny in the upper 30s. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Now, in business news, Cambridge-based Moderna is reconsidering its work on an MPOX vaccine. MPOX is the virus formerly called monkeypox. Moderna's CEO says there are other vaccines on the market that are working well. It's unclear if Moderna will completely stop work on its vaccine or if it will move resources to other projects. The CEO of Cambridge-based Fulcrum Therapeutics is stepping down. Ryan Stewart says he's leaving the rare disease biotech company for other opportunities. Former CEO Robert Gould will step in until a search can find a permanent replacement. Another outdoor clothing company is coming to the seaport. Steo is opening today. Boston is the company's first major city location. It says it chose to open a store here because of the number of online orders coming from the area. It's 845. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. 
And I'm A. Martinez. Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, is the first historically black university to have an intercollegiate women's gymnastics team. The program started last spring, and the 16-member team is gearing up for its first meet today. Embriel Crutchfield from member station WPLN reports. When Morgan Price was just two years old, she was starting gymnastics in a Mommy and Me class. Since then, she's excelled on the vault, bars, beam, and on the floor. I would always watch it on TV, and I was just always like, ooh, I want to do that. Price says she enjoys watching Olympic gymnast Simone Bowles because of her confidence. She just shows what like a true gymnast should look like. Before Bowles, there was Dominique Dawes. In the 90s, Dawes became the first black woman to join the U.S. gymnastics team and the first to win a gold medal with the team and an individual bronze medal. Back at the gym, Price is eagerly waiting for her first floor practice. This is one of her favorite parts of gymnastics because she can show off her dance skills. Price speaks loudly through her movements and attitude. At the edge of the mat, Price moves her hands like she's a mime in a box. But instead of looking at what she's doing, her face is watching the audience like, I know you see me hitting this. <laughs> That's Russell Warfield. He's the choreographer. His experience as a dancer, Broadway performer, and gymnast all comes together in Fisk's floor routine. He met Price about two years ago at a gymnastics camp. There are certain people that stick out in my mind. It's just they click and they have a certain energy about them, and they're excited and they want to learn, and that's what I always liked about Morgan. Fisk gymnastics coach Corinne Tarver has coached for over 30 years and was the first black gymnast to win an NCAA all-around championship, meaning she was a strong competitor in all four gymnastics exercises. She comes to practice just as Price is starting to learn the second part of her dance. She's everything that we could want, I mean, along with so many other girls on the team. Tarver initially watches like a coach, trying to figure out what needs a tweak. But Price's expression and dance power make it hard not to be a fan. <laughs> Love it! Loving it! Morgan Price didn't originally plan to attend Fisk, though. As one of the top recruits, Price had a signing day at school where she declared her intent to go to Arkansas University on scholarship. But she passed on that to make her childhood dream of being on an HBCU gymnastics team come true. African-American people weren't allowed to go to the same schools as white people or other people. So it's just really amazing that we have kind of like specific schools made for us to show our culture and to just bond with people that look like you. The team members are still getting to know each other. But over the next five years, the plan is to make NCAA regionals. For NPR News, I'm Ambriel Crutchfield in Nashville.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Federal Trade Commission has proposed banning a controversial staple of many employment contracts, the non-compete clause. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. Good morning, Rupa. It's a big day today, January 6th, which will now live large in all of our memories. It's two years since the Capitol insurrection. So we're going to devote a chunk of time on the show today to not just looking back at what happened on that day, but what's happened since and what it means for our democracy going forward. Also, the state of the far right. What did January 6th do uh, for that constituency? And we're going to ask here from real people. what we, We've heard a lot about the speaker drama on Capitol Hill, but what are people saying about it? Is it affecting people's lives? We're going to touch in on that as well, of course, as get all the latest updates from Capitol Hill as this continues to unfold. Sounds good. Thanks, Deepa. Thank you, Rupa. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. The recent spread of COVID, RSV, and the flu has been called the triple-demic. Experts are especially concerned about a rise in COVID cases. There's no question in my mind that we're going to be seeing a lot more infections with COVID over the next few weeks. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Why health authorities are urging people to take precautions. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Temperatures in the 30s today with rain likely in the morning and snow possible beginning in the late afternoon. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 8.52. The job creation engine of the U.S. is ticking along just fine, despite efforts by central bankers to slow the economy to fight inflation. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses with customizable coverage options as unique as your business. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. I'm David Brancaccio. Good morning to you. There is news just now that 223,000 more people were getting paychecks in December. That's down from the increase the month before, but it is a strong showing. The government's separate survey also finds the unemployment rate dropping in December from 3.7 to 3.5 percent. Economist Julia Coronado, founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, plowed through the fresh jobs report and is here live with what she learned. Good morning. Good morning. Solid, right? Where was the hiring? Very. Yeah, very solid. The job gains are broad-based. We really have only two sectors, tech and temporary help, that are losing jobs. Everywhere else, we still see job gains. We'd followed this. There had been many people not looking for work on the sidelines of the labor market. What do you see here? Well, we got a long overdue recovery in labor force participation. It's been flatlining most of the year. We sort of lost a decent chunk of the workforce. And at least in December, some people came back to look for jobs. All right. So we got that drop in the unemployment rate the good way. And now with the labor shortage, that forced a lot of people to work longer hours in a week because they couldn't find other people. It adds to your paycheck, but it can lead to burnout. What happened in December, though? Yeah, this has been a big trend. We saw the average work week really surge during the pandemic. It is now fully back to pre-pandemic norms. So 
we aren't seeing the overtime pay and the stressed workers due to labor shortages. We're seeing a pretty normal work week, which is also good news. All right. Economist Julia Coronado is also a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you. Checking my market screens here following that news. Actually, stock index futures are up. S&P futures up four tenths percent. Dow futures up five tenths percent. NASDAQ futures up two tenths percent. The Federal Trade Commission has proposed a ban on non-compete clauses. Those terms of employment that prevent people from leaving to work for the competition or to start a competitive business. Now, if enacted, this rule would be a sweeping overhaul of work in America. Marketplace's Matt Levin has more. The FTC estimates one in five Americans work under non-compete clauses that cost them up to $300 billion in lost wages. Elizabeth Wilkins directs the FTC's Office of Policy Planning. It can be a real problem for folks who are looking to uh, find a job with a better wage, with better health care benefits, more flexibility for their families. The proposed rule would nullify all existing non-compete clauses and ban them for future employees and independent contractors. Wilkins says that would also benefit consumers. Non-competes hamper innovation by restricting the flow of knowledge across competitors. Non-competes are most common in high-skilled fields like engineering, but law professor Orly Lobel at the University of San Diego says they've also become increasingly prevalent in low-wage work. Camp counselors, yoga instructors, warehouse employees. Many employers argue that non-compete clauses are the most effective way of keeping sensitive information in-house. Other legal protections for safeguarding trade secrets are just difficult to enforce, says Carolyn Lutke at the law firm Munger, Tolls & Olson. You're going to have to show that someone stole something, and that's obviously much harder to prove than just proving someone went to a competitor. Should the FTC's proposal become a rule, experts say legal challenges are likely. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed with people in mind to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Palo Alto Networks, secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0. PaloAltoNetworks.com. American factories in the month just ended were running slow, with activity dropping to the lowest level since the early days of pandemic. That's according to the Institute for Supply Management, which surveys manufacturers about things like output and lead times and input prices. Now, this is what central bankers like to see as they fight inflation. Marketplace's Justin Ho reports. This time last year, demand for manufactured goods was high. Tim Quinlan, senior economist at Wells Fargo, says the industry had to scramble to keep up. The biggest difficulty that firms had, say, a year ago at this time was finding the raw materials and resources they needed and finding the headcount to staff the factory floor. All that meant that manufacturers had a big backlog of orders to work through. But more recently, Quinlan says that backlog has been shrinking. That's occurred without a coinciding increase in shipments. And so that sort of implies that some of these orders have just been canceled. Demand for manufactured goods has been falling in recent months, both here in the U.S. and overseas, says Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. We have interest rates that are hitting businesses in the United States and consumers in the United States. You had the COVID lockdowns in China. Uh, you have a lot of economies dealing with inflation. Meanwhile, manufacturers are still dealing with a tight labor market. 
Chad Moutre is chief economist with the National Association of Manufacturers. Wage growth continues to be very elevated, and manufacturers continue to tell me just how difficult it is to attract and retain workers. But falling demand for manufactured goods has helped to make supply chains less congested, and input prices have been falling. That also is an encouraging sign that some of those bigger problems that manufacturers have had to face over the last couple of years have started to pull back a little bit, at least in terms of their severity. And that means the prices manufacturers charge for their goods is falling too. Tim Quinlan with Wells Fargo says that's welcome news. I think we could all stomach a little bit of slower demand in the economy if that's the elixir that you know brings some of these price pressures down. Quinlan says the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates to throw some sand in the gears of the economy. And in the manufacturing sector, it appears to be working. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. Back to today's jobs report. We also note wages went up three-tenths of a percent last month, less than expected, something inflation fighters like to see that is cheering the stock market. S&P futures up 1% now. Our digital producer is Jarrett Dang, engineers Jess Duller and Nick Esposito. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Rain likely this morning, then a good chance of snow this afternoon. At most, we'll get a half inch or so around Boston, but Worcester and areas of central Mass may get up to three inches. It'll be in the 30s, and it'll stay in the 30s tonight as the rain and snow may continue. Then a relatively nice weekend, partly sunny in mid-40s on Saturday, sunny in upper 30s on Sunday. It's 35 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston. And what happened just a few hours later was something that none of us could ever imagine. Something that I frankly expected as a U.S. Marine in in Iraq, but never even dreamed of happening as a United States congressman in America. Congressman Seth Moulton, March, January 6th, on Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.